All right, uh, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful and humbled to be uh, recipients of your word this morning. Um, pray that as we see these people this morning, um, this, this community of Israelites uh, longing to hear your word, that we would do the same, that we would long to hear your word this morning. I pray that you would make your word powerful and instructive among us. Use it today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, there are a lot of things on the internet uh, that you may be aware of. Uh, most of it is useless junk, all right? Some of it's evil, uh, and some of it's just bad. Um, but there's a small sliver of stuff on the internet that is really good. Um, I, can, I can tell you everything that's good on the internet right now. Um, number one, uh, cute videos of pets. Uh, number two, cute videos of babies. Number three, the weather right there on your phone, accessible. Number four, cute videos of grandparents and great-grandparents. Um, and number five is how-to videos and uh, articles. Um, I know this because I uh, frequently look up how-to videos and articles. I, I, and this is, if you, if you do like a repair service or something, I'm sorry, um, but I'm not going to use you. Like, I will break my stuff before I, uh, before I call you. Um, I'm, I'm very dogmatic. I, I, so I've, I've, I know that there are a lot of how-to videos on the internet. Like I've, most recently, we, uh, me and, and my brother, Garrett, we, we ran some data cables through the, uh, through the house, through the attic. I may have put a hole in the crown molding, but that's all right. I got it done. I just, um, with his, his expertise and the internet and lots of how-to videos, um, and I'm telling you, there's, there's a how-to video for everything. If you want to learn how to cook a brick for dinner tonight, I guarantee you there's a how-to uh, YouTube video about it online somewhere. So my, my point in saying that is that we, as humans, we crave guidance, right? From cradle to grave, we need guidance, right? It's from the time where uh, we're just even a little toddler, uh, we need continual instruction and guidance about how the world works, what we're supposed to be doing, with ourself, um, and all the way through the rest of our life, we need, to some degree, guidance in our life, right? Uh, that's true of, of individuals, obviously, like, um, like I said, you know, uh, with, with parents and children, school teachers, um, you know, college, I mean, continuing education through your whole life, I mean, need guidance as individuals, but also, you know, communities, institutions, this kind of, they need guidance too, groups of people, right? Like uh, a corporation, they need um, earnings reports and vision statements and other business buzzwords that I don't really uh, understand very much. And those, those kinds of uh, guiding documents help the business, you know, stay on course. They're, uh, they're meant to be a source of guidance so that the, the corporation doesn't devolve into nothingness, right? In the same way, we as a congregation, as a church, as a community of believers need guidance, we need guidance for our faith, for the practice of our faith, for the knowledge of our faith. We need guidance in, in how we're supposed to operate as a church. We need uh, guidance and direction. And ideally, ideally, as a Christian organization, we would receive our guidance from the Lord in some degree, right? 
And we don't, you know, put out a fleece or anything like that, right? We don't just uh, wait for the Lord to, uh, to speak to us in our visions and dreams, but we believe that he has revealed himself definitively in his word, in the books of the Old and New Testament, that he has spoken to us through his word. And as such, this Bible that we have, the books of the Old Testament and New Testament, are our guide for our faith and practice as the church at Trace Crossing. And as we want to grow and to become a more faithful church, we should grow in becoming more and more of a word-centered church. As the word of God is, is, is powerful and as it provides the guidance we need as a congregation, the more we center ourselves upon the word, hopefully, ideally, the more faithful we should be. So, this morning, uh, we are looking at just a, a one-off passage. Um, this is not like starting a sermon series or anything like that. This is not the start of Advent. If you thought that, you were probably confused, but I'll clear that up right now. That starts next week. Um, so this is just a, a kind of a stopgap sermon in between our, uh, our Acts series, which concluded last week, or at least that part of the Acts series, and the Advent sermon series that will start next week. Um, but this one-off a reminder of the importance of the Word of God. We see uh, this group here in the book of Nehemiah, this small group of Israelites who have band, banded together to uh, come under the guidance of the Word better, of them having the, uh, the guidance and authority of the Word uh, restored in their community. So um, this morning, I, I want us to look at this passage in, in Nehemiah um, and basically to, to understand the role that the word played in their midst in hopes of becoming a more faithful word-centered church ourselves. We'll, we'll, we will look at the background of this passage um, to help us understand exactly what's going on here. Then we will see the place of the word ascribed by God's people, and then we will see the purposes of the word accomplished in God's people, the place of the word in these people, and the purposes of the word that were accomplished among them. So we'll begin here, as we look at this passage, we'll begin by understanding the background, what's going on here. Um, ordinarily, like if we were going through a sermon series on Nehemiah, this wouldn't be so necessary, but we've got to understand the background of this passage to, be under, to understand what it's saying and how it speaks to us. Um, so first, you'll notice this occurs in the Old Testament, right? So that means, to some degree, this is in the story of the people of Israel. Um, specifically, this is in a period that has often been called the Restoration, the Restoration period. And you might realize when you hear something being called a Restoration period that there has to be some kind of restoring, right? Um, if you're restoring something, that means it's probably not in good shape, right? If I told you that I'm restoring a car... Um, which, believe me, I could not and will not do. Uh, but if I told you that, you would know that I, it's probably a clunker right now, right? It's, it's probably in bad shape. And that was true of the Israelites. Uh, they were being restored from something that was called the exile. The exile, if you're familiar, was a terrible period for the Israelite people. It was a time where the Babylonians of 586 B.C. came to, uh, came to the city of Jerusalem they put the city under siege. They came in, uh, and they, they um, burned the city. They burned homes. They burned the temple. They burned the palace. Uh, the city was effectively destroyed. And a lot of the most promising young people uh, were taken away, 
kind of saying like, hey, we're taking away your future. They were taken away back to Babylon, and the people that were left had quite literally a broken home, right? And a lot of them were dispersed. This was a terrible time of, of suffering for Israelite people. You may wonder, well, what wound the Israelites up in such a time of intense suffering and persecution at the hands of the Babylonians? Well, it was, it was due to their own sin, and it was due to the judgment of God. And um, the way that this happened, it wasn't, it wasn't a quick thing, right? It wasn't like they hit the particular trigger and then like the, the judgment of God came on, but it was a slow process, kind of like termites in your house, right? Like it happens over time, you ignore the warning signs, and eventually the floor falls out. And the Israelites, it was, it was much the same way. Their sin had grown over time, generation after generation after generation. They had continued in idolatry and disobedience to the Lord. Moses had warned them about this before they went into the promised land um, in, in Deuteronomy 30. Listen to this. This is, this is an interesting passage to me, just the clarity with which Moses speaks here and the warning he gives. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So, essentially, uh, Moses is warning the people, hey, if you will worship the Lord and obey what he commands, things will go well for you. In other words, choose life. Israelites did not choose life, though. Over, again, over generations, they continued to disobedience. And so they were taken away in exile. But the Lord didn't abandon or forget his people. As I said, this happened in the period of restoration. And so the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, and the Persians, by their policy, allowed these Israelites to return to their homelands. Right? So this was a time of rejoicing, where they were allowed to return to the land that the Lord had given them. And uh, they were able to return to Jerusalem. It was a time of great rejoicing. Now, as we come to this passage in the book of Nehemiah, you might, you might know, uh, if there's a book named Nehemiah, there's a guy named Nehemiah, um, and that's true. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, and a little over a decade after these um, Israelites had come back to the land, he became concerned that the wall there in Jerusalem had been destroyed and hadn't been rebuilt. You may think, well, that's the big deal, right? We don't need a wall around Tupelo. Like, why was it a big deal for them to have one? Of course, nowadays we have jet fuel and explosives and those kind of things, and a wall doesn't do much physical good, but in that time it was a thing of security, right? And so um, Nehemiah returns, and the wall is rebuilt. The people are more secure, and here they begin to kind of turn uh, and look inward now that they've been made secure. 
And as such, they, they kind of start to reflect on these past few years, the time that they had spent in exile um, and how they had wound up there. They reflected on the sins of their, their ancestors and on their own sins, and they became convicted and convinced that they were going to do better. They were convinced that they were going to try to live up to the stipulations that God had put in his covenant, the promises that I read there in uh, Deuteronomy 30. And they became convinced that they were going to live up to it. And the way that they wanted to do that was by placing the word in a primary place among them. They, look, they turned to the word of God, they turned to the law in, in a way to, to direct them in the path that they should be going. And so that uh, is seen here in this passage that, that uh, Lori read for us. Um, which, by the way, Lori, I'm, that was a lot of uh, Jewish names. You did admirably. Um, so uh, anyway, so this passage that we see this morning, we see um, the people coming to Ezra, who was a, a priest and a scribe and kind of the spiritual leader of this restoration period. And they come to him um, pleading with him that they would have a, a time of hearing and reading and knowing the word. All right, so they come to him for this. And so they set this up and they read the word and they instruct the others in the word. And what we see in this passage, what we see in this passage is again the place, the place that the word of God had among them and the purposes that the word of God accomplished among them. Um, so we see first the place that these people ascribe to the word. And as I look through this passage, I see just in, in a dozen places, right, how much these people valued the word of God. They had a, a primary place that was ascribed to the word of God. And I think we can see that primary place, that primary place of authority, the primary place of, uh, of, of um, esteem. I think we can see that in a few different ways. The first way, I think when we look at this passage in Nehemiah 8, and we see um, the way that these people value the immense place they put on God's word, the first way is that they carefully planned to hear God's word. They carefully planned to hear God's word. When you look at, at Nehemiah 8, um, you can see just by the event itself that it took some careful planning, right? I mean, y'all know um, it's hard enough to get people to show up like to a wedding, right? And these guys are doing a like four or five hour public reading of the law. Um, so that obviously, if you're going to want the whole town involved in that, that requires some planning itself. But um, some other things we see in here tell us that this was a very you know, strategic um, approach to this hearing of the law. First, we see the day that they read the law. This occurred on the first day of the seventh month. And when I first read that, I kind of read it just as a, a day, right? I mean, it's like, I know, I know the calendar doesn't work the same. I'm like, oh, okay, July 1st. Um, but there's more significance to this day than that. This specific day was the Feast of Trumpets, which was a um, time of celebration for the Jewish people. Um, it was prescribed in the, the Old Testament, in the law, and it was a, the time for them to, um, to feast and to and hear uh, the word of the Lord. And some days after this, ten days after this, uh, would come the uh, Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, which you know uh, is the 
valuable, important day in Jewish uh, life as they, um, as they, were, as they uh, approached God for atonement for their sin. And so in preparation for this, in preparation uh, spiritually for that day, um, they come and they, they have the word read to them so they can go ahead and prepare their hearts, prepare their lives for this day of atonement that was upcoming. So this was not just a random day that they picked to do this. This was an important day as they, they planned uh, to hear God's word. We can also see other ways that they prepared um, in this and that they planned carefully, right? You can see in... Um, in these verses that they made a wooden pulpit kind of thing in, in verse 4. They had a big platform that they had built specifically for the purpose, right? They took their time uh, to, to build a platform so that Ezra would be heard, that he would be seen, and that uh, he would be able to properly communicate the word to them. So essentially they were making careful planning and careful preparation to hear the word. Of course, you can tell what somebody values by what they plan to do, right? You show me your planner. Um, I cannot show you my planner, by the way. It's, it's up here. But um, <laughs> that just made some of you anxious. I can see it on your faces. But, um, but you can show me your planner, and I'll show you what you value, right? Um, what you plan to do, what you spend uh, your time doing is what you value, right? If you spend all of your time with, with family or friends, well, I could tell you that you love them. Or if you, you know, spend all your time on, on hobbies, I can tell you, you you love that hobby, right? Well, these people, as they carefully planned to hear God's word, God's word demonstrated that they loved it and that they found it valuable, that they were ascribing a place of importance in them. And so we, as a congregation, should continue to make uh, plans to hear God's word. In a sense, I, it's just one of the reasons why I'm thankful that we approach worship in the way that we do. Um, each week, we, you know, we begin with a call from the Lord, uh, from his word. We end with a blessing from his word. We read uh, an opposite text of the sermon, um, opposite testament text of the sermon. Um, we, we hear a, a word of assurance of grace from the word. Uh, we, we preach the word every week. We recite a passage over our giving. Um, and so we've attempted, we've attempted in our services to saturate our plans with hearing the word um, from beginning to end of our services. And so we as a, as a church should continue to make plans uh, also just through the week, through the calendar year to hear the word, but we as individuals should uh, also continue to plan to hear the word. We want to be a group of people that continually are making plans in our personal life to hear from the Lord in his word, right? Um, I know uh, some seasons are busier than others, right? Sometimes it's easier to make time to hear the word of God, but it is always important. Um, as, we, as we encounter God in his word, we are transformed. And so we should continue to make time as individuals through our week, through our days, to hear and know the word of God. So the first way that they, they placed uh, such importance on God's word is that they carefully planned to hear it. The second way is that they democratized the word. They democratized the word. I don't mean that they read the Bible like a Democrat or whatever that might means. I mean that they made sure that everybody was able to hear the word. Everybody was able to hear the word, right? So if you note the place that they did it in verse 1, it says that they gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Not to be confused 
with the hotel. Um, was Richard Nixon's not in this. Um, but they gathered in the Watergate, which was a public place. Um, there's not a lot of importance in going into what exactly the Watergate was, except to note that it's not the temple, right? The temple was the place of religious worship, and the temple was segregated into different sections where some areas only men were allowed to go, and uh, some areas uh, Gentiles were not allowed to go. Most areas the Gentiles weren't allowed to go. And so um, here, though, they are gathering all as one people into this public place. By doing so, they're able to make sure that uh, the men and women and those who could understand, uh, verse 2, that everybody who had ears and a brain were able to be there to hear this word of God proclaimed to them. And they did it also notably in a public place, in a sense saying, this is not just something that happens here in the temple, in temple worship. This is something that should be part of our lives throughout. This should be a part of our regular public lives that we share with one another. So essentially they were making the word available to everybody and demonstrating that it was not a, uh, not a segregated, um, closed off kind of thing. So, in the same way, uh, as they do that, obviously, by making these pains to make sure that everybody is able to hear the word of God, they demonstrate that they value it. In the same way, we should, as much as possible, make sure that we all are able to hear and know God's word as much as it is possible for us, right? We, we try to do that by having, uh, you know, our, our different classes, by having um, our, our worship time. Um, but we also want to make sure that we all, as individuals, are seeking to know the word, right? Um, I think sometimes, I think sometimes people view knowledge of the Bible kind of in the same way that I view, like, knowledge of cars. Um, I don't know much about cars at all, um, but that's okay because I have a mechanic who does, right? And I think people sometimes view knowledge of the scriptures in a similar way. Well, I may not know much about the Bible, but I know such and such who does, or my pastor knows a lot about the Bible. But as these people all gathered, and as one, men, women, all who would understand, eager to hear and know the word, we should, too, be people um, who, to the person, is eager to know and receive God's word. Not just for elders, not just for deacons, uh, not just for staff members, but we all, all should be seeking to know and love the word of God. So, first way is that they carefully plan to hear God's word. The second way, they demonstrate that this, this incredible place they put on God's word, uh, they, they democratize the word. But third, they attentively listen to the word. They attentively listen to the word. Of course, that's stated directly in verse 3. Um, it says that uh, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In other words, that they, uh, they were standing there eager to hear it. Right? They, they demonstrated that they were listening attentively also just by their physical posture. It says in verse 5 that when Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, um, the, all the people stood. Right? So they stood in, in reverence and eagerness to hear God's word. That's a practice that you know, continued on and continues to this day. We just did that. Right? Um, we stood in, in reverence at the hearing of God's word. Um, and furthermore, they did this for hours, right? In verse 3, he read 
from early morning until midday. I don't know exactly how long that was, but we can guess a long time, right? That Ezra stood and read this word for a long time, and people were attentive, attentive throughout. By doing so, they demonstrated that they had uh, ascribed an immense place to the word of God among them, that they valued the word of God deeply. They were eager and excited to hear it. Right, I can tell you the same as someone who's, who's taught children a lot. Right, um, When you teach kids, um, a lot of times uh, throughout the teaching process, you know, you get a lot of this. And they don't know they're doing that, but it's okay. I mean, it's okay. They're kids. Um, and they just kind of stare like that. And then when you say, it's time for a game, oh, then the face is different. You know, it lights up, perks up, and you can tell, like, the antenna is up. They're ready to to hear about this game um, because they're excited for it, right? Um, So essentially, you could say they really value the game, right? Uh, They're very excited to hear it. The attention that we give to things demonstrates the value that we place upon them, right? So I noted earlier that we should be continually making plans to hear God's word, both as a church and as individuals. But we should take care to make sure that that doesn't become just a rote exercise. Um, if it becomes a rote exercise, the effectiveness of it should be diminished. We should be continually seeking eagerly to hear from God's word, um, seeking to draw as much from it as we possibly can um, with eager anticipation of its, its value for our lives, our values rather. All right, so they noted, uh, excuse me, we can note the, the immense place that they put on God's word their careful planning to hear it, through uh, their democratization of it, and their attentive listening ears towards it. But the last thing we see, the last way that they valued it, was that they taught the word clearly. Verse 8 says that they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense, so that the people understood the reading. So you look at this verse, um, it says that they read from the book, from the law, clearly. Now that word clearly, ironically, the, the meaning of it is not entirely clear. Um, it uh, is, most of the, the kind of consensus is that it probably refers to something like translation. Right? These people, remember, they were taken away from their homeland. They lived in a foreign land. They were there for 80 years. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of them, you know, were not the same people that were taken away, but they were, they were born in a foreign land. Um, they'd been there a long time. And so their, their knowledge of their you know, mother tongue in Hebrew was probably a bit lacking. So they made sure that everybody was able to understand the words. And furthermore, it says, and they gave the sense, which we can probably interpret to mean that they interpreted the word. Um, so they took care to make sure that this wasn't just reading the word, right? Like you, you go to, like you would back in the day, you know, as in like a long time ago, uh, you'd go to a uh, service some churches and it would just be Latin, right? Um, it was uh, it was just it's not incredibly valuable for people, um, but here here they made sure that they understood and knew the word. They thought it valuable enough to make sure that it wasn't just uh, empty words feeding their ears, but they really knew what they were hearing and that they were properly able to respond and live accordingly. So um, in the same way, we as a congregation should be one another, right? That is a responsibility that we all have to one another to help one another.
another understand the word especially given to the elders of our church as well um and, and furthermore we should continue as individuals to submit ourselves to quality uh, teaching that will help us to understand the word of god better right so and all of those things through their careful planning through their attentive listening through their democratizing it through uh their teaching the word and all of that we see that they valued the word immensely they valued it but the word of god is not some static thing that we just value for its own sake right it's not like a book club or like i really like this book because of blah 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 or i really uh didn't like this book because of blah 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 it's we believe that the word is active and that it works as well it's not merely something that uh that we we gaze at but something that transforms us right it accomplishes specific purposes and here we see that the word of god begins to accomplish some specific purposes in these people as they hear the word of god right you look at verse nine you look at verse nine we see first that one of these purposes that the word accomplished in god's people is that it leads to repentance it says nehemiah was the governor and ezra the priest the scribe and the levites taught the people also to the people uh this day is holy to the lord your god do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. All right, so um, essentially here we see um, these people, their hearts were cut to the point of tears, cut to the point that they began weeping and mourning. Um, we can surmise that they looked on the past sins of their ancestors, they looked upon the sins of their own, and that the terrible things that it had caused, and they wept. They became sad. They became repentant. This is a purpose of God's word that, that um, occurs as it's read. Uh, the word of God is meant in some degree to show and to reveal to us our own sin. Um, it's not a pleasant process. It's not an enjoyable one. But in it, we are uh, revealed um, our own sin. That, as we say each week during our time of confession, uh, that is not just, oh, that's a bummer, right? It's a good thing. It's a good thing that our sins are revealed to us through the word, right? Without them, we can easily become blind to our own sin, become blind to the ways that we've offended God, become blind to the ways that we harm others. But the word speaks to us in our sin and says, no, you have transgressed the law, you've transgressed the teachings, you've transgressed these commandments, and it calls us to repentance. It calls us to change our way and change our path as it did these people. So we see that the word, it leads to repentance. Second purpose, second purpose is that the word leads to joy, right? Let me read verses 10 through 12 again. Then he, Ezra, said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Right. Um, so, uh, these people had become so repentant 
and so mournful that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites had to stop what they were doing and like, whoa, whoa okay, today's a holiday, all right? Um, so they had become so repentant, and they celebrated again in this holiday that had been prescribed by the Lord, and they became joyful, right? They note that the joy of the Lord should be their strength. Right? The word of God does not merely provide occasions for repentance, but it provides occasions for joy. Here it was in this, this holiday that was prescribed for, um, for the Israelites. Most commonly, it comes to us in leading us to joyful worship of our God. Right? That's just like in, in verse 6. Um, it, it leads the, these people to worship as Ezra blessed the Lord and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands and bowing their heads and worshiping the Lord with their faces to the ground. Right? So we see this, this incredible reaction as the word is proclaimed as they're made joyful in their worship of the Lord. In the same way, when we come to the word, it leads us to joy. It leads us to rejoice in our great God. As it says here, the joy of the Lord is his strength. And as we are continually led towards the worship of the Lord for his character, for his mighty works, for his incredible act of salvation in Christ, we are continually led towards worship and we are led towards joy. We're led towards joy. So we see these people, they, they experience repentance. They experience joy. But we notice something that's missing. The function of the word that we know to be true as Christians that doesn't happen here. We know that the word leads to Jesus. And of course, these people, um, as they, they experience repentance, they experience joy, they are, looking, they are looking at the law as a list of things that have to be kept before they can re-earn their favor with God. Right? That's, that's kind of basically how they looked at this. Our ancestors, they screwed it up, and so we are going to repent, we're going to try really hard, and we're going to do it. We're going to be the generation, we're going to be the ones to make this work. Instead, they never cast themselves on the mercy of the Lord or their hope on his Messiah to restore them. And I'm not saying this is Phariseeism, but that spirit, this, this immense place put on the word, as a check mark to be done, that would eventually give birth to Phariseeism. Now, you know uh, that the Pharisees were a group that took the word of God very seriously, truly very seriously. And they, they took worship of the Lord very seriously. But eventually all of that just became a check box uh, to be met so that they could earn God's favor. As Jesus came, um, by the time that he came around, they, had, they were not merely following the law, but they were following like this oral tradition that they had placed around the law to make sure that they wouldn't even get close to it, right? Like, for instance, um, Jesus' disciples, they were hungry on the Sabbath day, and so they grabbed uh, some heads of grain, um, like, you know, the snacks, and the Pharisees accused them of reaping on the Sabbath day, right? They had a uh, turns out a whole list of things that you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath to make sure that you really rested on the Sabbath day. And one of those things was reaping, which you couldn't do. Um, and so uh, this, this approach to the word ended up crushing them, right? It led them to repentance, and, but it, they tried to find the joy in all the wrong places in their own obedience. But eventually, eventually, 
Jesus would come. And he would explain how the word points towards him as the source of life and salvation. For instance, um, Jesus, as he's confronting the Pharisees in John 5, says in verses 39 and 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You remember I talked about, I read in uh, Deuteronomy 30, that Moses charged the people to choose life. And there is in the context of obedience and that sort of thing. But Jesus comes and fulfills the full law. Keeps the whole thing. is obedient to the point of death. Obedient through his whole life and keeps the law when none of these here in Nehemiah, any who would come before them or any who would come after besides him would be able to do. And he says, in me, by putting your faith in me, you may truly have the life that you're seeking from these scriptures. The word of God points towards Jesus. It points us towards him as our supreme source of life, as our supreme source of joy, and as the balm for our repentance. In Jesus, we find the work of the word complete. So we should place an immense place on the word of God. And we see the word of God works powerfully among us. It has incredible purposes. This most greatest uh, treasure is that it points us towards our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, um, I pray Enjoy this morning. Pray enjoy um, that uh, you have spoken to us definitively in your word. Lord, there's no ambiguity here. In Jesus, we may find true life and rest and peace. So I pray that you would use your word to turn our hearts towards him. Lord, turn our hearts again and again so that as we um, are as we are continually inclined towards sin, we may continually uh, find the source, the strength to overcome that, not through our own efforts, but through the work of your Son. God, we are so grateful for our salvation. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.